Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be looking at two passages, Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 10, as we are continuing in this series on how God grows our faith. We, we're trying to spend 40 days of, of faith and, and determining, you know, what does faith look like and why is it important and how does God grow it, how does God mature it within us. And we have discovered so far in this series that the reason why faith is so, so important is because it is our lifeline to God. It is the means by which God releases his resources from heaven down to earth as a result of our exercising faith, trust, hope, confidence in our Heavenly Father to do what only he can do. Right? So we can do what we can do, but he can only do what he can do, and therefore that's where the faith and the trust comes into play. So we've kind of defined faith as just an outrageous trust in God. We just want you to outrageously trust God, even when it seems impossible, when it seems like there's no hope, there's like there's no way this could work out. We're just saying, hey, what Jesus challenges us with is to just trust God in outrageous ways, and God is always, always faithful to his word and what he says that, that, that he will do as our Heavenly Father who loves us and wants our faith and trust and confidence in him to grow and grow and grow. Why is that? Because the deeper, this is true for any relationship, the deeper your confidence and trust in somebody, the deeper the level of intimacy there is in that relationship. This is true in marriage. It is true in your walk with God. It is true in your friendships. Listen, if, if I don't trust you or I have no confidence in you, we're probably not going to be real intimate friends. We're probably not going to be real intimate in our marriage or relationship with uh, other people or even with God. If I, if I can't trust God, I think I can't uh, have a, a, you know, a certain amount of confidence in God. That level of intimacy is going to stymie somewhere. You're going to reach a level of faith, and it's going to plateau on you, and so does your intimate walk with the Father. You'll never go deeper in your intimate walk with God than your hope and your faith and your confidence and trust in him absolutely uh, goes. So we have discovered um, over the last several weeks that there are five catalysts that God uses in our lives in order to help us grow and mature in our faith and our walk with him. Now, again, this list is not in the Bible, but if somebody were to tell you their faith story, you're going to find these five things that will be intermingled in the story that they're telling you about how God grew your faith and challenged your faith and stretched your faith and pushed you uh, in directions you really didn't want to go, but you chose to go with God anyways, and, and God just showed up in miraculous ways, profound ways that, that absolutely floored you that God would be so, so faithful in your life. And as a result of that faithfulness of God, your confidence and trust in him went deeper and thus goes your intimate walk with him. And so the first one we talked about was practical teaching. That is, there's some point in time, somebody invited you to a Bible study, somebody invited you over to their home, and somebody opened up God's word and began to teach it to you in a very practical way. Not in a way just to give you information, but in a way that would bring about transformation in your life and says, these are these are truths of God. These are principles out of God's word that if you apply them, if you obey them, you will find that God will be faithful to do what it is he said he would do. And you, you took the challenge, right? And you trusted God and you obeyed God's word. And as a result, when your obedience intersected with God's faithfulness, your faith began to grow because God was all, is always, always faithful to his word. So the second week, we talked about providential relationships. Now, a providential relationship is not a relationship that you necessarily set out to establish, but it is how God establishes relationships in our lives. In other words, he brings people across our pathway that helps us to grow in our faith. 
And usually this providential relationship will be with somebody whose faith is like way beyond where you are. This is where you want to be, and here's where you are. And so God brings this individual or individuals across your pathway that enables you to see how God is so faithful to their faithfulness and how God has moved in their lives in such dramatic ways. And when you see somebody else's faith, then it inspires you to trust God in greater ways. And so as a result of those relationships, God pushes your faith walk with him forward and in a deeper way. And then last week we talked about um, private disciplines. So private disciplines, there are a lot of kind of disciplines in the Bible. Again, the, the word discipline is kind of negative to us. We think about, you know, you're getting spanked as a child. That's not the kind of discipline God's talking about here. But these are things that we do privately uh, day in and day out that help move our faith in God forward. So there are a lot of them you could look at, but we just pulled out three that Jesus had. These, Jesus taught these three, and he modeled those three, and the three were generosity, living a life of generosity, prayer, how important prayer is, and fasting, one of those things we don't often think about as followers of Christ. But if you want to experience spiritual breakthrough in your life, you must take on the private discipline of fasting. God usually... Um, precedes this spiritual breakthrough in our lives when we are willing to fast and to listen to God. Because here's what God wants to do through your fasting. God wants to download to you wisdom. Wisdom to see things from his perspective. Wisdom to see God's word uh, as it applies to your particular situation in your life, whatever it is you're going through. And so as we do that, as, as God blesses our generosity and as God answers our prayers and as God uh, downloads wisdom through our fasting and then God shows up in faithful ways, now all of a sudden it strengthens my faith. It moves my faith forward. So today I want to talk about um, the fourth catalyst that God uses, and it is the catalyst of personal ministry, personal ministry. Um, this, is, this is huge, uh, an avenue that God uses over and over again in our lives in order to stretch our faith, to grow our faith, to deepen our faith and our intimate walk with him. So if I were to have you tell me your faith story with God, more than likely there would be in that story somewhere along the way where God challenged you. I mean, you heard somebody talking about a need somebody had, and all of a sudden your heart just kind of went out to that person or to that organization or... Um, you know, to that uh, event or maybe to, um, you know, as a, a short-term mission trip, whatever it might be, but there was just something stirring inside of you and God was nudging you to engage and be involved in that personal ministry. And so you have this opportunity and maybe at first you're thinking like, well, I don't know if that's really me or not, but, but more you think about it, you can't get it out of your mind. You, you, you're wrestling with it. You can't get it out of your heart. And God just keeps coming back over and over again with this internal nudge in order to involve you in something that would serve and would benefit the lives of other people. And so today I want to talk about the tension, the fear, um, the apprehension that we experience inside of us when God challenges us in greater ways in personal ministry. 
Because, you know, a lot of times when it comes to ministry, we think, well, you know, I'll just do some things that are safe, right? I'll go out, I'll hand out a bottle of water to somebody, or, you know, I'll give away free food, or I'll, I'll do those easy, safe things. And those are fine and wonderful to get your feet wet in the area of ministry, but God does not want you to remain there, right? God is constantly looking to ratchet up our faith walk, and so he's going to ratchet up the, the call upon your life to engage in personal Ministry, And so when God calls you to do something that, you know, just kind of creates a little fear inside of you, like, ah, oh, I don't know if I could do that. I, that's really not me. It's not keeping with my personality. And I'm an introvert. I'm an extrovert. And, and we come up with all kinds of excuses. And we think, you know, I'm smart enough. I'm not talented enough. I'm not gifted enough. And what if I try this and it doesn't work out well? And what if I fail? And so we go through these mental gymnastics. And inside of our emotional bank is this uh, tension and fear and, and apprehension when we're presented to serve God, whether in the church or outside of the church, and there's this tug of war literally going on inside of you. And you kind of feel like Jacob back in the Old Testament where he's wrestling with the Lord, you know, and you're just like wrestling with God, and God's trying to, you know, he's inviting you to be involved in this, and you're like, well, but God, you don't, you don't see, you don't understand. And so there is this tension in every single one of us. And often the wrestling match, what God is doing is he is challenging you to step outside of your comfort zone, whatever that comfort zone is for you. And so when God wants us to, to grow in, in um, faith and trust and confidence in him, he's going to push you outside that self-limiting box that you have around yourself so that you have to be dependent upon him. You have to trust him in greater ways. And whenever you are pushed outside your comfort zone, there's always that angst that is inside of you that you're wrestling with. Now, I remember the very first time I was invited to go on a mission trip, and this mission trip was to Jamaica. And you're thinking, whoa, Jamaica. Well, uh, no, it wasn't to, you know, like, uh, you know, Montego Bay or any, you know, Ocho Rios or any of the resort areas. Uh, when I was in seminary, Winston Clemenson, who was also in seminary at the same time, he was the director of all the Baptist churches in the entire uh, country of Jamaica. And so he invited a group of us to go with him into the inner, inner, um, uh, island into the inner country of Jamaica, and there we were going to be building a church. Uh, we, were, we were helping build a church in, uh, by day, and we were holding revival services by night. And so, you know, I'm thinking, well, the building thing, I, I've been in building all my life, so I thought, well, that's a safe thing. Uh, and then I, it was uh, made known to me, and oh, by the way, you're going to be preaching um, seven out of the ten nights. Now, all of a sudden, I'm like, whoa. Like, I, I didn't have much preaching experience at that time, but I, but I went anyways. You know, there was a tug and wrestling going on. I said, should I go, not go, should I go, not go? And uh, so, I, you know, I finally, I, I went, and it was like here, uh, it was 90-some degrees to 100 degrees during the day. We're, we were pouring concrete, but in Jamaica, there is no concrete truck, okay? What they do is they bring a truck out, and they bring in the sand and the gravel and the concrete, and you've got a mixer you know, a gas-driven mixer, but you got to mix up each bass, put it in a wheelbarrow, and wheel it into there. And we're pouring the entire floor of this church in this manner. And oh, and by the way, when they came with the gravel 100 yards away from our site, the axle broke on the truck, so they just dumped the load. And then we had to wheelbarrow all that to, to the place that we were... So I mean, we were just like drained during the day, and then it comes nighttime, and it's time to preach. And, and there at, at night, I mean, the dark is really dark, and they don't just have a lot of lights. And so I'm in this church, 
And I walk in there. I'm already nervous about preaching. And uh, there's the pulpit, the stage. There's no lights in the auditorium. They have a single lantern hanging over the pulpit. That's, that's the light for the church. So, um, but here, here's the end result is that by the end of that week, God did such amazing things, incredible things in the hearts and lives of people that, that I would have never, ever, ever dreamed that God could have done through little old me or our team as for that matter. I mean, we, in, in Jamaica, when you're building a church and they, they, had, they had already built the concrete walls, well, because of um, earthquakes, you have to fill all of those holes in the concrete blocks with cement, like, like a rebar running through it. And, and we got all of that done, which was absolutely amazing. We could accomplish that in a week. And, uh, you know, God was saving people right and left, and we were just seeing God. So the second time around, when God invited me to go on to a mission trip, this time it was to Wales. It was through our, our international mission board, and I was going to be in Wales for two weeks. And so we, we brought a team. At that time, I was pastoring in Alabama. We formed a team, and we went to Wales, and... Uh, Went through London into Wales, and we were there for two weeks. So here's one of the things we would do is that we would go into a local pub because, you know, the pub there is kind of like a restaurant with a bar. This is where everybody hung out. So we would go in there, and this particular pub that we were in was owned by a sailor, and this guy was a former sailor. He was, I mean, he was rough. And, uh, but he gave us permission uh, to have the stage uh, every night for four nights. And so what would happen, we had a, a young lady who sang, and so she'd get up there and be singing country music, and she would draw a crowd. She would move from country music into uh, gospel music. And then at the end of that set, I was supposed to go up and share my testimony. So, again, that's one of those situations where I was so, so nervous and, and thought, God, you know, I don't, what, what are you going to do with this? And how is this going to happen? And, and so, you know, it wasn't just me doing testimonies, but it was other people on our team. But two things happened that stand out to me. Number one is there was a man who was attending and he was an alcoholic, and God so, so dramatically saved him that night that he just like, you know, I mean, God just delivered him from his alcoholism, but he was also an artist. And there were um, eight people on our team, and what he did during the course of the week is he drew, he, I say, I know you can't hardly see this, and you probably can't see it on camera, but this is a, the crucifixion scene of Jesus where Jesus is carrying his cross, and Joseph is, is commissioned to help him, and here's the Roman soldiers. This is all etched in glass. This man did a scene, a portrayal of the last week of Jesus' life for every single person on our team, and etched that in glass. And it wasn't framed when he gave it to me, and I had to try to get it home without getting it broken, which caused me all kinds of anxiety. Uh, but, um, I mean, just God just, and the last night we were there, the owner of that pub knelt before Jesus and asked Christ into his life. And, and it was just, his wife said, I've never seen somebody, my husband change so dramatically as he, he has, because we went back and visited with him, you know, before we left out of there the, the second week. And so I'm just saying this, listen, there's not a person alive who, who uh, does not get nervous, who does not feel this anxiety, this anxiousness, this, this tug of war inside of you when God is seeking to stretch your faith through personal ministry. So I want us to look in Ma Matthew 14, because here is an example in the Bible where um, Jesus, uh, I think this describes the issue, this wrestle that we have in our faith journey better than, than anything else. 
And so I'm going to make some statements, uh, some truths uh, that I want you to latch on to when it comes to personal ministry. And here's the first one. Personal ministry, personal ministry will always challenge your faith. And the reason why it's going to challenge your faith is because God is in the process of stretching your faith. And so God's stretching our faith today with, oh, I guess that one out, that one's on. Okay, so you're, you're getting it on the screen. They're making faces at me back there. So uh, anyway, so here we are. Let me just kind of set this up. Um, you know, in Matthew chapter 14, Jesus' cousin John the Baptist has been arrested by Herod. And, and Herod the Great, uh, you know, he had a, a kind of an illicit relationship with his his brother's uh, wife, and then he uh, ended up, you know, taking his, his wife and had this kind of an illegal marriage. And, and so John the Baptist was uh, constantly using this as a sermon illustration in his messages. And so John, Herod and Herodias, his, his wife, uh, did not like that. All right, so John the Baptist is finally arrested by Herod, and uh, eventually he is beheaded. And so word gets back to Jesus that his cousin John the Baptist has lost his life. And so this is where we pick up the story in uh, Mark chapter 14 and verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw the large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And so here's Jesus. He's, he's, you know, he's walked ha half a day. I mean, he's, he's, he's emotionally tired. He really wants to withdraw in order to go through a kind of a period of mourning over the death of his cousin. But when he gets to where his his next destination, the crowds have already followed him, all right? So by this time, Jesus has healed many people, and his popularity was at an all-time high. And so notice how Jesus responds to their needs. It says that Jesus has compassion on them. And out of that compassion, he heals those who are in need. Now, by this time, it's getting late in the day. Well, you know what happens when it gets late in the day and when people have not eaten? They get, they get hangry, right? They're hungry, they're irritable, they're, they're, they're a little angry, they're a little touchy. Uh, this happens all the time. I mean, you go into a restaurant, and if you have to wait for a table, and people are out there waiting with you, the longer they have to wait, the angrier they become because they're hangry, and, and they're just you know, wanting to get in there. And, and So the disciples come to Jesus, and they point this out to him like Jesus wasn't, wasn't aware Hey, hey, Lord, um, you know, we're in this remote place. We got nothing to eat here. We need to get these people fed. What are we going to do? We need to send them off, let them go eat, and, and maybe we can return tomorrow or whatever. Now, look very carefully at what Jesus says to his disciples in response in uh, verse 16. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, keep in mind, there are 5,000 men here. That's not even including the women and children. So the estimation is that this could be a group of people anywhere from five to 15,000 people. And now all of a sudden, um, they need something to eat. Disciples want to you know, move them out so where they can get something to eat, nourish themselves, whatever. Jesus, no, I'm not having any of that. I want you to feed them. Now, if you were one of the disciples, how would you have responded? Well, you probably would have responded like they responded. 
And now you understand the tension that's going on when you experience ministry, and it's, it's so exciting, but the tension uh, is that you sense that somebody has a need, you might be used of God to meet that need, there's an organization that's really appealing to you, and you think like, you know what, I can get engaged in ministry there, and... and um, and so maybe, maybe you're a, a woman and there is a, a, a woman in your neighborhood who's asking questions about Christianity. She knows you're a Christian. She's asking questions about the faith. And, and you feel like God's saying, you know what, you're, the, you're it. You're the one. You need to go and you, you need to be the one to talk. And, or maybe we put out a need here at our church and says, hey, here's a ministry need. And God says, mm, you're it. You're the one. You need to go. So here's exactly what the response of the disciples was, what our response is, and it's simply this. It is to make excuses, to make excuses and to emphasize our limitations. I didn't put that on your outline. You can add that, to emphasize our limitations. Immediately, we say to God, but Lord, <laughs> I, I can't do this. I can't meet. Look at what the disciples did when Jesus says, you, you give them something to eat. And he, he says, we, hear, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Like, what are we going to do with this limited, minuscule? And, and when you think a loaf of bread, you know, we think of a big loaf of bread. No, no, in that daytime, it was like the bread was flat and it was like small and round. And the fish were probably like sardines, because we know from the other gospel writers that this, this was a little boy's lunch, right? It wasn't meant to feed 15,000 people. So immediately they realized we have very limited supplies. We have no ability to feed all these people. Jesus, don't you see? Don't you understand? We cannot do this. And it's the same way that we kind of emphasize the same thing. Um, now, <laughs> They're in the presence of Jesus, right? Like physical presence. So they're not going to walk up to Jesus physically and say, Lord, we, we can't do this. <laughs> they just simply say, well, you know, we only have limited supplies. What are you, what are you really expecting of us? And, and uh, we're ill-equipped. We're ill-prepared. We, we just can't do this. And maybe you have felt drawn to a group of people or an organization or a need, and you realize, you know, it really wasn't guilt uh, that was moving your heart. It was really the nudging of God in your life that was moving your heart to engage in the ministry uh, that God is calling you to. And often we respond like the disciples with Jesus and we say, well, but Lord, you don't understand. I don't feel equipped. I don't feel qualified. I, I don't feel prepared. I'm not smart enough. I'm not educated enough. I didn't go to Bible college. I didn't go to seminary. You know, uh, besides what if I try this and, and it doesn't work out and I fail and I make you look bad. I make myself look bad. So here's, here's what, here's the weapon we pull out. We say, God, um, I don't meet those needs, but I pray for people to be sent by you to meet those needs. I'll just pray about it, right? But yet God's nudging your heart to get engaged in the ministry, but you're saying, but Lord, I, I don't do that. But I will pray for people to, to go and do that. God says, no, I want you to share Jesus with the person in your neighbor. Well, neighbor, well, God, I don't do that, but I'll pray that God, the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into my harvest. I'll, I'll pray that. And God says, mm, no, no, no. In fact, if you go back and actually look at that verse, when Jesus taught his disciples to pray that, he looked at his disciples and said, you are the laborers I'm sending into the harvest. So we tend to backpedal, we emphasize our limitations, we come up with all of our excuses, and we say, Lord, I can't do this, but what I will do is I will pray for somebody else to come and do what it is you're asking me to do. 
Because when you think about yourself in those environments or situations, you are aware of what you don't know, you're aware of what your limitations are, and so um, you choose to just kind of step back rather than stepping out. Can I just share something with you? There's not a person alive whom God has nudged their hearts to do something in private ministry who has not had that struggle in their heart, I can assure you. But here's what I also know. Those who choose to take a step of faith in God's direction and who step outside that comfort zone and do what it is God is nudging you to do, that God will always be found faithful and he will do in you and through you some of the most amazing things you never thought could happen in and through you. I can assure you of that. Here's the second thing about personal ministry. Personal ministry will call for your limited resources. It will always call for your limited resources. What did Jesus say? They says, Lord, we only got five loaves and bread and two fish. What did Jesus say? He says, bring them here to me. Oh, bring me your limited resources. I know they're limited. Bring them to me. All right, so our thought is this. Well, Lord, it takes too much. This is what disciples are thinking. It takes too much, and I have so little. How in the world could I pull this off? takes way too much, way beyond me. I have way too little of what it is that's needed to pull off this ministry, to meet this need, to help this person, to serve this organization. And so Jesus would say to us what he would say to his disciples, look, look, but God, I hardly know the Bible. Well, that's great. Just bring me what you do know. Well, Lord, I, I don't have much time. Okay, I understand that. Bring me what time you do have. Well, Lord, I, I, this is a hard question. What people ask me hard questions, I don't know what the answer is for. Don't worry about that. I'll, I, you know, bring me what you know and what experiences you have. I'll work with that. There's never, ever going to be a time in which God calls you to step outside of your comfort zone and to step outside of your limitations, which we all have limitations regardless of how far your faith walk is, that it's not going to cause some angst inside of us, but God will say, listen, I don't care about your limitations. I'm telling you, you're the person. You're the man. You're the woman. I'm asking to engage in this person's life and bring me whatever limitations you have, and I will work with that, and I will see to it that the need is met, that I use you in a way you never thought you could be used. This is what's going to happen to the disciples. In fact, they're going to learn a principle that we all need to drill down upon. Now, so here's what Jesus does. He says, well, and they directed the people to sit down on the grass. They taken the five loaves and two fish, looking up in heaven. He gave thanks, broke the loaves, and then he gave them to whom? He gave them to, not to the people. He gave them to who? The disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and, and the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 besides men and men, women and children. Now, you can imagine when Jesus is blessing this, like, like the disciples are facing Jesus. He's blessing this, these two fish and five loaves, and he's separating it out among his 12 disciples and the crowds behind them, and Jesus is praying a, a prayer of thanksgiving to the Father, and they're probably looking up at Jesus like, uh, are they still there? Are they there yet? Are they still there? Are they left yet? Are they gone? Like, what are we going to do when we turn around? We've got to face these 15,000 people. We've got these uh, mirror crumbs and, you know, a bit, little bitty piece of fish. Here's the principle you don't ever want to forget. It's the principle that Jesus is driving home in the hearts and lives of his disciples. I need to do 
what I know to do, and then Jesus will do what only he can do. I need to do what I know to do, and then Jesus will do what only he knows how to do. He's going to fill the gap. Listen, Jesus, when he put those few crumbs and fish, bits of fish in their hands, he knew that they, they had no ability to feed that many people. So, but they could do with what they had, their limited resources, if they applied that, if they gave it out, then Jesus would do what only Jesus can do, and only Jesus can multiply fish and loaves. And so the, the Bible says that Jesus distributed it through the hands of his disciples and that everybody ate till they're satisfied and 12 baskets left. What do you think that did to their faith? <laughs> right? I mean, what would that do to your faith? All of a sudden, you've got, you're handing out, handing, and, and the, it just keeps resupplying itself in your hands. You don't know how you're doing it. God is not, God's the one who's doing it through you. So the point is this, no matter what the limitations are, if God's nudging you, if God's calling you, if God's engaging you in that ministry, in that person's life, he is doing so because he knows that you can only do what you can do, but if you'll only do what you can do, Jesus will do what only he can do, and he'll make sure the job gets done. That is a principle you have to carry with you. Because God is constantly going to be pushing us and nudging us outside of our comfort zone. And so when you feel that internal nudging of God, and God says, you know, I want you to serve there. I want you to go there. I want you to sign up for that trip. I want you to engage in that organization. I want you to engage in that person's life. Rather than coming up with excuses and, you know, pontificating all of your limitations before your Heavenly Father, God's just simply asking you to do with what you can do with, with what you have and what you know to do, and he will take up the slack. Your heavenly father will do what only he can do. And so there's going to be this tension inside of you, right? This tug of war that's happening inside of you. Every time God is moving and stretching and growing your faith, that tug of war will never go away because God's never satisfied with our level of faith. He's always pushing us more and more and more because he wants the intimate relationship to grow deeper and deeper and deeper. And one of the ways that happens is through personal ministry. And so here's the third um, principle here, and that is this. Personal ministry will be communicated to you by the Holy Spirit. Personal ministry will be communicated to you by the Holy Spirit. Now, notice what it says in verse 22. Immediately after this has happened, immediately, they got these 12 baskets of leftovers. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up to the mountainside. And why was he going up the mountainside? To pray, private discipline. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat already considerable distance from the land was buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So the disciples in this boat, they're rowing, 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 but it's not moving anywhere because the winds are, are pushing against the boat. So this is the first time in the Bible you find a stationary rowing machine, right? See, this is where it all comes from right here. And during the fourth watch, so this is in the middle of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the water. And when the disciples saw him, it says they were terrified. It's a ghost. They were cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately says to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now, Peter, Peter has a little bit of an insight here. 
I know that Peter sometimes, he can, like, he can fly off the mouth, and he can kind of put his foot in his mouth and make some really bad decisions. But Peter, Peter has a little bit of insight, and he's thinking to himself, you know what? If Jesus gave us a task of feeding 15,000 people with a few fish and, and loaves, and he knew we couldn't do it, but he did it through us anyways... Now, all of a sudden, I'm, I'm faced with a similar situation. It's like, here's Jesus out on the water. They thought he's a ghost. It's not a ghost. It's Jesus. And, and, and Peter's thinking, I wonder if this principle applies here. I wonder if I can get out of this boat and walk on the water over to Jesus. Because after all, I know what I can do. I know how to get out of boats. I know how to walk. Jesus knows how to keep me afloat, obviously, because he's afloat. So therefore, maybe I'll put this, this principle into practice. And um, so Peter decides to test his theory. Now, let me just say this up front. Peter understood he wasn't just going to trust Jesus. So I'm just trusting Jesus, jump out of the boat and try to walk to him. See, there are a lot of people who have tried to launch ministries and try to do things. They're like, I'm just going to trust God and just jump out and do it without, without hearing the invitation from God. That's, that's not faith. That's stupidity. God's not calling us to test him in such a way. But notice what Jesus did. Look very carefully. It says, um, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come out to you on the water. And here's the invitation. Come. Now, what if Jesus had said, stay in the boat? Peter would have never got out of the boat. But he said, come. He invited him. This is so, so key, is that when God is inviting us into ministry, into serving somebody, into this organization, or, or whatever it is that God wants us to do, onto this mission trip, God gives us the invitation. And when God gives us the invitation to come, to serve, to, to engage, then he's expecting us to do just that, right? So Peter, okay, I've received the invitation. I know how to walk, get out of a boat. I know how to walk. That's as far as I can go. That's my limitation. But obviously, if Jesus did it in the feeding of the 5,000, he'll do it here. I'll do what I can do, only, what only I can do, and he'll pick up the slide. He'll do what only he can do. And that's exactly what happens. Peter gets out, and he starts trucking across the water. Now, we make a big deal over the fact that when the wind blew and the waves came up, and Peter kind of lost sight, and he kind of stumbled a little bit and began to sink, and Peter and Jesus had to reach out and grab his hand, and, and people say, well, you, you know, Peter's just lacking faith, and yeah, he may, I don't think, I, Jesus says, you know, why, why are you doubting? Why, why? I don't think Jesus is chastising Peter. I just think Jesus is saying to Peter, Peter, you had us so close. You were so close to walking all the way out here. Man, you just got to trust me in deeper ways. And people make fun of Peter, but what about the other 11 guys back there in the boat? Ain't nobody walking on that water. Listen, you'll never walk on water without getting out of the boat. What do you think that did for Peter's faith. You have to understand that when Jesus, and Jesus is toward the end of his ministry, and he's about to hand over this entire organization to his disciples to carry it on in his absence. And he knows he needs an organization of trailblazers in the walk of faith. And the other 11 guys, they, they haven't even gotten that as far as Peter. They're not even out of the boat. 
Peter's experienced something they, they, they missed out on and would never experience. I mean, he had that to put in his journal. Man, the day I walked, I walked on water. I, I almost made it to Jesus. I, I started sinking a little bit, but I'm going to tell you what, for, for a little while, I was getting her done. But my buddies, they're a bunch of scaredy cats. They're all back here in the boat, and they're just whining and crying and all fearful of it. Whenever God calls us to engage in personal ministry as God's moving our faith forward, listen, um, when God invites, all he wants to hear is, I'm ready to go. Lord, you understand my limitations. You understand that I cannot do what it is you're asking me to do. But I'm, I'll tell you what, I'm willing to step out of the boat and to try to walk on water. And I will do what only I can do because I believe that you will do what only you can do. And that's the way faith works. That's the way God grows, deepens, and forges our faith, confidence, hope, and trust in him that leads to greater, greater levels of intimacy. You'll never get away from that. I don't, I, it doesn't matter how long you've been walking with God. If you allow fear and intimidation to keep you in the boat, you'll never get out of the boat. If you never get out of the boat, you'll never experience God in deeper ways. You never experience God in deeper ways. Your hope and faith and trust and confidence in him will never grow. And if that never grows, your intimacy will never grow. And this is why many, many, many believers are so bored with God. Because we never get out of the boat. I mean, it's, it's, like, a, it's like in a rush, man. It's like an adrenaline rush when you, you step out and you're trusting God. We rather just like the disciples, most people, when you ask them about personal ministry, they just want to stay in the confines of the safety of the boat. Don't ask me to get out. Ain't never done that before. I don't think I'm equipped. I don't think God can use me. And we got a thousand one excuses, and we pull out all of our limitations, and God says all of that is null and void in his eyes. If God gives you the invitation, you need to step out. Here's the last one, and we close with this. Go to Mark chapter 10, and that is, and we're just going to hit the highlights here, is that personal ministry will always correspond with true greatness. Personal ministry will always correspond with true greatness. Now, again, Jesus, um, yeah, he is, he is making his way um, into Jerusalem, and Je this is really towards the end of Jesus' life and ministry here on earth. We pick us up in verse 32, and they were on their way to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, <clears throat> and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid, and he took the twelve aside and told them what was about to happen to him. We're going to go up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. So Jesus says, hey guys, we're going to Jerusalem. And at that time, the disciples will be all excited because they're thinking, aha, it's it's at this moment in time, Jesus is going to Jerusalem for the last time. He's going to claim his Messiahship. Israel's going to turn to him in repentance and accept him as their Messiah. And he's going to rise up as the military Messiah he's meant to be. And he's going to throw off the yoke of Rome. And we're going to have our independence. And it's going to be a wonderful thing. And then Jesus drops the bomb. Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to Jerusalem, all right. 
but I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. And they're going to, they're going to mock me, and they're going, to, you know, they're going to do all these things to me, and in the end, I'm, I'm going to die. But, 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 but that's not where the story ends. Three days later, I am going to rise from the grave. Now, that's an incredible thing. Um, but in the midst of that, let's drop in on the conversation that the disciples are having. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Isn't that like most people following Jesus? Like, Lord, uh, the reason I have you as Savior and Lord of my life is because I want you to do whatever I ask you to do. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And they replied, let one of us sit on your right hand and the other sit on your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink of or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together, and now here's time for an uh, an, um, object lesson. You know that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become the great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus uses this opportunity to teach them about true greatness. Most of us think that greatness will be dependent upon, at the end of our lives, the size of our portfolio, the size of our bank account, the number of degrees that we have acquired in life. we, We have a whole list of things that we think that God would consider true greatness, and God says, I don't consider any of that true greatness. Those are wonderful things. God does not, you know, downgrade you for for having things, for having money, for having degrees, none of that. But God, Jesus says, if you want to be truly great in the kingdom of God, then you become a servant. You serve. You look for ways to serve people. You look for ways to hear God's invitation to step outside of your comfort zone into personal ministry so that God can push your faith forward. And, and the end result of that is that people's lives are touched, people's lives are blessed, people are moved by the love of God being displayed through you. So let me just say a couple things about this in closing. True greatness sacrifices for the sake of others. True greatness sacrifices for the sake of others. You know, if you're married, uh, you realize that when you, uh, before you got married, uh, you really didn't get married because you were looking for a title. Uh, you got married because you began falling in love with somebody. And what did you do when you started falling in love? You served them, right? You served them any way that you could because you wanted to display your love for them. And, and so um, I know when we were dating, Marley got really, really ill. She had mono. And I mean, from her mother's report, I didn't think she was going to make it. And so um, it was dead of winter. I, I drove from Newark all the way to Columbus because she liked this Bentwood rocker that was a service merchandise. How many remember service merchandise in Columbus? And uh, so I drove all the way here, got the rocker, went back, put it together so that they could put it up in her room to give her some kind of comfort. And it's amazing the things you do for people when you're dating and then you get married and you've been married for a little while and then all of a sudden your wife asks you to take out the trash and you would think she was asking you to move the earth, heaven and earth, right? You're like, oh, 
and we complain about it, groan about it, and all these other things. But in relationships, you know, this is what happens is that we are in relationship to serve, not, not for a title, oh, he's the greatest husband or she's the greatest wife, but we just serve because of our love and our compassion for that individual. But in relationships, oftentimes we, we have conflict because we have certain expectations of one another. Like when we got married, my wife expected me to do the things that her dad did for her mother. And when I didn't live up to those expectations, it was like... <clears throat> So here's, she would get me by going, well, I'll just call my dad. He'll come and do it. Like, mm. like, yeah. Right? So I had expectations of her, and we're not meeting each other's expectations, so there's conflict. But in the end, as, as we've spent you know, many, many years together, it's, it's not about expectations anymore. It's about, it's about love. It's about sacrifice. It is about putting someone ab- above and ahead of yourself in order to... Um, in order to, for the relationship to grow deeper and more intimate. You know, it's kind of like when a husband, you know, the expectation to the husband is, well, I'm getting home from work, and oh, I can't wait to get home. I'm going to you know, sit back, take a nap, and, and uh, just kind of relax a little bit before dinner. And your wife's thinking, well, uh, no, you're, giving, you're coming home, and I'm handing these monkeys over to you we call children, and uh, you're going to wrestle with them for a while until dinner is ready. And, and so those expectations can create conflict and create conflict enough, long enough and strong enough, it can deteriorate a relationship. So you kind of see where I'm going with this, is that the goal of greatness, the only thing that really matters is serving others in the name of Jesus, not because we want some title. This is what James and John are looking for. Man, they want to be, t- they want to, they want to be on top of the organizational chart of Jesus' kingdom. That's what they were interested in. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. It's not about titles. It's about serving. It's about loving. It's about expressing God's love for people through serving. Here's the second thing. True greatness adds value to others. It adds values to others. And so uh, just to give you a little backdrop, when they're asking to be seated on the right and the left hand of Jesus, uh, you know, in the Passover meal, I mean, oftentimes we look at, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's painting of the, the Last Supper, which is not a real accurate depiction, all right? You don't see 20 or 12 people at this long table so they can all sit on the same side and you don't have fish on the plates because they didn't do fish. It was lamb uh, for Passover. But anyways, aside from all that, uh, more likely is so the, the table was more U-shaped so that everybody is looking at each other. They're not, you know, staring out into nothingness or trying to look down the line. I mean, you don't go to a restaurant, right, if you got 12 people in your family and ask for, you know, six tables so you can all sit on the same side, uh, you, you tried to do that when you were just dating somebody, and it was really awkward. Uh, but and so the the, the, t- the top, you know, at the top of the U is the, the seat of honor, which is where Jesus would sit, and there was somebody on his left and on his right. Well, if you were the person who is uh, sitting on the left of Jesus, then you were a trusted friend. And, and, by, and, and lo and behold, John, when he's asking the question, is the person who is sitting there, and then the person on the right was your guest of honor. And guess who was sitting on the right hand of Jesus? Judas Iscariot. That's why Jesus said, when I take my bread and I dip it in the cup of the one who's about to betray me, no one would have thought that it was Judas because he was sitting at the hand of Jesus. And so what James and John were saying in essence is, Lord, we want to sit on your right hand. We want to sit on your left hand. We want to have the place of honor. We want to have... We, we, we want to have the title, the place of honor. I mean, we want to be like ruling, like right there with you. And Jesus said, yeah, no, 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 you're, you're misunderstanding. You can't even drink. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink from? 
Now, in the Jewish wedding, there were two cups that were used, the cup of joy and the cup of sacrifice. And in the Passover meal, the third cup was the cup of sacrifice. And the cup that Jesus was about to drink was the the wrath of God for the sins of humanity. And Jesus was saying, in essence, you will drink of that cup because all of the disciples, with the exception of John, died as a martyr for their faith. And so um, they're asking to serve in these positions and sit in this place of high esteem. But Jesus says, no, 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 the way you add value to other people is not by sitting over them, but by getting down with them in life and help them and serve them and love them the way I have served and I have loved you and I have demonstrated for you what it means to be a servant. And here's the last one. True greatness models the heart of a servant. They're walking towards Jerusalem from Galilee, which means they go through the city of Jericho. Herod the Great had a a winter palace in Jericho. Now, at this time, Herod is dead, but in that winter palace, it was a huge building project of his and had, like, indoor swimming pools. And and so, like, Herod was always very jealous over people. Like, he had the high priest one time uh, come and, and... Invited him for a swim party and then had his guards drown him because he felt like he was getting too much too pop, popular among the people and for his liking. And so the backdrop is this. In, in this culture, you are great for one of two reasons. Either you are a great warrior or you are a great builder. And so Herod was not a great warrior because he was only four and a half feet tall. And so he just like, you know, didn't tower over anybody. Uh, but he was a great builder. And as a result of that, he built some huge, huge structures. And Jesus says, listen, there's two ways you can pursue greatness, either by serving or wanting to be served. This is what Jesus brings it down to. He says, if you want to be great in the kingdom, it's not about looking for people to serve you, but it's about serving others. So I say this, today... Every day, you have the opportunity to serve someone. Today, every day, you have the opportunity to show God's love. Today, every day, you have the opportunity to share God's plan, his plan of salvation. Jesus says, when it's all said and done and we've left this world and we stand before him, he's not going to say, this was a life of greatness because of what I think it would be. Jesus is going to say this was a life of greatness because here is an individual who was willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, receive my invitation to engage in personal ministry, and without hesitation took the time and took the step of faith and engaged in what I wanted them to do. And when he did, when Greg did what only he could do, with what little limitations, what little things he had, what limitations he had, then I was faithful to do what only I could do. And that was the faith walk that God has called all of us to. And in the end, God will have considered you great and mighty, not because of your degrees, not because of the size of your portfolio, but because you chose to live the life of a servant. Let's pray together.